Welcome to The Rabbit Hole Detectives, a podcast where I, Dr. Kat Jarman, Richard Coles and Charles Spencer chase the provenance of historical objects both real and metaphorical. Each episode, we set one another the task of finding out as much as we can about a particular subject to present a comprehensive understanding of the origin stories of stuff. After all, everything has a history. It just depends on how far down the rabbit hole you're prepared to go. And at the end of it all, our disembodied voice pronounces a winner. Welcome back, rabbit holies. Thank you, Kat. Good to be here. Yes. Everyone had a good week? Well, uh, is that a new plant? I thought that too. (laughs) Does it feel different, something different? I thought it might be the new plant. Hmm. It's a bit dusty. I mean, not menacing or anything, but it's just different. It It looks like it's been away from the sun for quite a long time. I actually don't think it needs sun. If you look very carefully, I think it's one of those that doesn't need a lot of sun. Beyond the need of sun. Because it's all smoke and mirrors in podcasts. It is a bit, isn't it? So I'm not sure the listeners can even see that plant. Think of how long we spend in airless, windowless cubes insulated from sound and light so we can do our thing is it uh, what are we quite noble for doing that or not really you know you were talking about the poorhouse last week I remember yes. that last week i recorded my audio book in oh, yes. strathmore studios in clerkenwell and i said oh what was this building assumed it was like a board school it was the holding prison for transported convicts so they're from newgate where they'd be sentenced to transportation up to clerkenwell and then from there out to wherever it was where they got their ship to Australia and a blessed life. But don't you think once you know that about a place, you just can't be happy in it yourself? I stayed in a hotel once, which had been a workhouse for young girls. And there was a photograph of the very lost uh, girls all in a row. And you just, it just kills you. You just think of their agony in that place. Well, there was in Northampton, in the council offices in Northampton, which you and I both have frequented. I think it's the mayor's parlour or something... Well, no, so one of the offices used to be the gallows. It used yes. to be Northampton Prison. Oh. And there they hanged people, yeah. which I would feel very uncomfortable about if I... Oh, yeah. Terrible. Terrible. You don't really Terrible. Mm. We always get on to this, don't we? Yes, we always <laughs> <laughs> never That's quite step quick. From We're about two and a half minutes in and we've, <laughs> we've gone on to executions already. and yes. yeah, gallows and things. Well, well, yes. We have slightly anyway. more upbeat topics this week, Well, you we? say that now. I said that now. <laughs> OK. <laughs> they look upbeat on my piece of paper, but we'll see. So... As with every episode, we've all gone home with our three new subjects and burrowed into our rabbit holes to see what we could find. I'm going to be starting this week. And it's something that people get very excited about, which is treasure hunting. Yeah. And treasure and the concept of treasure. Because it's actually something that I come across a lot in my line of work. Explain that, Kat, Explain. for people who don't okay, know. Okay, so yet. I'm an archaeologist. Oh. Yes. And we actually deal with, so obviously I wouldn't call myself a treasure hunter at all, although some might disagree that we're doing the same <laughs> sort of thing, but we're trying to do an academic thing around it. But we do come across the concept of treasure. And treasure has a very, very specific legal definition which is very, very interesting, actually, and how that's come about. So, you know, what happens to these things, buried treasure in the ground? So something, if you come across gold or silver or a hoard or something like that, who does it belong to and what do you do with it? And in this country, anything that falls under this definition of treasure belongs to the crown. And it has done so for probably at least a thousand years, as far as we know, and it might go back further. And at the moment, it's a very, very specific definition. So it's things like uh, metallic objects that have more than 10% silver or gold, 
If it's uh, two or more coins from the same find together that are at least 300 years old, then they are also treasure. So if you find any of these things, you have to report them to a coroner uh, within 14 days and you can get into an awful lot of trouble and huge big fines because they belong to the crown. So if I dig up a talk yep. of twisted gold in yep. my back garden, yep. if I don't tell the coroner about it within two weeks, yep. I'm in trouble. You could be arrested for and sent away for a very, very long time. Now you tell me. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> but if you do, so you report it, you do actually have a right to the value of it as well. So as a finder, presuming it's on your land or you have permission from the landowner, you do actually have a right to the value of it. So they have to buy it, essentially. The state and you have to get, Yeah, well, essentially. The so they have yeah. to give you compensation for it. So as long as you have permission, that's fine. But who fixes that rate? Sorry? Is it the market rate or um, is it... British Museum. Yes, British or Museum. Somewhere. There's a treasure committee. So the treasure evaluation committee. There's a treasure they, committee. I yes. had it. I was up on the other side of them actually yes. about ten years ago. What did you dig up? Well, I <laughs> didn't, but a man bought a metal detector and went on some land that I have an interest in and found two hundred Roman coins, very valuable ones, actually, some of them. And I don't assume he knew what to do, but there is actually a a thing which I'm sure Kat was going to get onto, that there, there isn't a square inch in England that's not owned by someone. So you can't say I didn't know it wasn't owned by someone. And eventually it went to the British Museum and they looked at it and they awarded 50% of the value to him and 50% of the value to me. And it was Roman coins that had been presumably buried to... You got half the whack of treasure... Yeah. Without having to do anything. Yeah, so as the owner, owner. And this goes back a really long way, actually. <laughs> well, that I'm, the, idea. I'm not getting it. What's the point of a metal detector if someone like you comes on <laughs> and takes half the value of my talk? Well, it's his land. If it's his land, if it's in your garden, if I come to your garden and I find it... Actually, I can't. As an a professional actually, yeah. archaeologist, I'm not entitled to anything. Yeah, well, well, so fair enough. Okay. Okay. That's fair enough. Right. But anyway, so but that, interestingly, allow him that this 50-50 yeah. goes back such a long time. So some of the earliest laws we know about is exactly the same thing. It goes back to the Romans. So Hadrian, for example, he had very specific laws that creating that any person who finds treasure on his own land is entitled to it. And if it was found on the land of somebody else, that half and half applied as well in the Actually, Roman that, period. It's quite equitable now, I think. Yeah, about it's quite it, nice because yeah. somebody's doing it. Well, um, people who do metal detecting are really strongly encouraged to have an agreement in place before they start on someone's well, land. Well, technically know. they have well, to. Well, you mean to, yeah. have yeah. Have <laughs> <laughs> to have permission or to actually have an agreement about what to do with the proceeds should they find well, it? Well, that, that's, you know, covered really by... That's by covered. A, you have to have permission and B, it's best to have a, a licence in place. Where so hang on, how many... Does this happen a lot? Yeah, it does. So there's a, there's a big problem in this country, especially with illegal metal detecting as well. And people do get sent away to prison for a really, really long time. Well, recently, the Hereford Horde, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. So this is a really interesting. There's a the Viking Hereford Horde, Horde. <laughs> in uh, Herefordshire. These men didn't have permission and they detected, found a huge, very valuable, very unique Viking Horde. Didn't report it, but tried to sell it on the black market. But it was picked up by, and so some of the dealers were a bit dodgy as well. And eventually, um, they actually did some really stupid things. They posted on, on social media and on forums online about their find and posted photos of it as well. And the local finds um, <clears throat> liaison officer, who is somebody who works to look at all of these things and register them, found out and, and actually questioned them. And eventually there was a huge big police operation and their houses were searched and they found some of them. Apparently one coin was hidden inside the handle of a magnifying glass, hmm. properly trying to, to hide them. But, they but they've sold a lot of them. So we, it's estimated they had found 300 extremely unique and valuable 
early medieval coins. Only a small proportion will be found, but they've been sent away for, I think, over 20 years. It's very um, annoying for you guys, isn't it, that it something is. of historic significance should not... Precisely. And, 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 and also, if they had declared it, they'd have got half the value and wouldn't have gone to prison. Yeah, so. they would have, I mean, it was worth millions, so yes. <laughs> <laughs> they, they did a really stupid thing. But it is the problem is that this definition is really narrow and it, it goes back a long way. So there's lots of archaeologically important things that don't get registers because they're not 10% silver or gold or whatever. So something historically, something like the Sutton Hoo ship, the Anglo-Saxon Sutton Hoo ship, which had amazing objects in it, technically at the time, that wasn't treasure. Because the Treasure Act now, it was something called treasure trove. So the previous definition of that is something had to be hidden deliberately with the intention of it being retrieved later on. But because the Sutton Hoo ship was a ship burial, they weren't planning to come back and dig it up again, so it wasn't considered treasure trove. So this idea that it's something that's concealed and somebody is coming back for it, that's always been the definition. So even when we go back to medieval times and have these you know, I'm guessing, Kat, that if there's a Roman hoard, then the likely scenario, I know nothing about this at all, would be that perhaps the collapse of Roman authority and power and infrastructure, you might just bury some money to scarper yeah. while someone came along and Precisely. So it's for safekeeping. So yeah, so we think that a lot of it is for safekeeping. And one really interesting thing, uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to drag the Vikings back into it. Oh, just because, yeah. They're always <laughs> you know, just over the horizon. Haunt um, helmet of hearing. <laughs> there's a brilliant, um, so there's someone called Snorri Sturluson who's written uh, down all these sagas about the Vikings. He talks about the gods Odin and Odin's law and what what you're meant to do when you die. Odin's law, it says that you're meant to be buried in a, in a pyre, so you're meant to be created under a mound, and you have to be buried with all your stuff. And everything that's burnt with you comes with you up to Valhalla and to the afterlife. So not just the things that you've buried on your pyre, but also anything that you've buried in the ground. If you think about it, this is quite clever because if you go into battle and you're out raiding and you have all your Dane Geld or whatever, what do you do with it? You can maybe sort of give it to a friend for safekeeping while you go into battle. But oh. actually, it's more likely to bury it in the ground. So either then you, you come back for it if you survive, or if you don't, it's fine because you get to take it with you no, in the afterlife, which is quite good. So the, the Did you say Egil Skelligrill? Saga? That's like my that. favourite song. Yeah, I it's a very good song. one. I should just yeah. do that one next time, shouldn't I? Well, no, no. <laughs> it's also very good. But, but no, but it's, it's, all, it's all super interesting and, and this sort of idea of, of buried treasure and what you do with it. And, and the law, as I said earlier on, probably dates at least back to the 11th century. And the first known reliable reference to treasure trove is... Again, your favourite, Henry the First. Oh, so there's a, a law saying that... They're um, crowding in today, our old regulars, <laughs> As one of the rights the King of England has alone and above all persons in his land. So it was actually seen as revenue. It was no interest, obviously, in these objects as you know historical objects. It was all just income. Value, yeah. Value. So it was sort of treasure to be part of the uh, exchequer. That was established by the 12th century. So, yes, yeah, so this sort of idea, and there's lots of folklore around treasure and lots of ideas going back quite a long time. But I think the treasure and treasure hunting, as we think of it today, is quite often obviously related to pirates and pirate oh. treasure. Mm -hmm. And so that comes into the 16th and 17th century. But it was uh, especially Treasure Island, the book by Robert Louis Stevenson, that really popularised this idea that you could go and look for pirate treasure. And there's some really fantastic examples of that and those stories that are quite well known. An 18th century example of somebody called Olivia Levasseur, who was a pirate, came across this huge galleon full of riches, 
took all the, all the loot, buried it apparently in Madagascar. And he was caught later on with this buried, having buried this treasure. And apparently when he died, he was executed. So yeah, he was caught and executed, threw a piece of paper, a parchment paper into the air, sh- shouting, this is my treasure for he who can understand. And it was a sort of cryptic, oh, as a cryptogram, and people are still oh. searching for this. <laughs> but actually, I think, I think one of my favourite facts on this was that apparently there are no real treasure maps. Oh, um, actually, so we don't know. We don't have any pirate treasure maps well, anywhere. That's, so that's that's a fictional thing. It's a tricky one, though, isn't it? Because how do you ensure? I mean, it's like it's an old story, isn't it? The security of your data. Yeah. So a treasure map, if that should fall into the wrong hands, exactly, it'd be very bad for your interest. Exactly. So mm. you probably don't. And I think this is because we do get all these hoards, certainly in the we talked about the Viking Age, and but any period really. What do you do with the riches, and who do you tell? And do you so? And there are some that are clearly sort of collections of family jewellery over the years. And but you often it would be in same. panic, wouldn't it? As well, I mean, yeah. you're burying it because you're in mortal danger. Yeah, and some of them, we can date them uh, with things like coins and see it's happening. You get more of them in times of political unrest, mm. so you know that there are there's trouble. Out I think there. also as you get older, you care less about that stuff. Like you always stories in the papers about people dying and they're finding their bungalow. They've got a mantenia on the wall or something, which they just oh, whatever. Yeah. You know doesn't seem important after a while. Yeah, if you don't know what's going to happen to you, if you don't have anyone you really want to give it to, then you think, well, what's what's not? One other sort of favourite fact was that the only sort of closest, probably earliest that we get to that, I mean, a map, but description of of treasure was from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Yes. um, That date to between 50 to 180. (laughs) we don't call them that. I do not, sorry. The Qumran writings. Yes. (laughs) Thank you. We. Welcome. Well, we do, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I hear it's cuneiform gate all over yeah. again. <laughs> Isn't it? Let's not go there. People. Let's not we'll go never there. Never go anywhere. We're okay. Anyway, in that, <laughs> there's one scroll. Can I call it a scroll? Scroll's fine. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Copper scroll, just to be specific. But, Perfect. You know, yeah. 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 <laughs> Which has a description of 63 locations pointing to hidden treasures of gold and silver. Really? Didn't know But that. so far, nobody has actually found those yet, so we don't know if it's mm. real or not, but they're very specific. Did you know that Escobar, Pablo Escobar of the Medellin drug cartel, was making so much money that he buried loads of it? Yes. Loads and loads and loads. Were you about to say that? No. Oh, but no, loads no. and loads and loads of bundled dollars are buried still because there's so much money he just couldn't find enough places to stash it away. I don't know how carefully you need to pack dollar bills to keep them intact in the Yeah, it's easy with gold, isn't it? I think you should just change it into gold yeah. and then bury that instead, probably. He was listed by Forbes as the seventh richest man in the world at one stage, and it's believed that his wealth went up to as much as 50 billion Blimey. and rumours that he potentially buried at least 30 billion of it. His nephew recently found 14 million pounds hidden in the wall of one of his uncle's houses. And a farmer in a remote part of Colombia found $600 million <laughs> worth in some blue tubs, which was also believed to have been buried by Escobar. Do you know what he spent $2,500 a month on? No. Blue plastic tubs. <laughs> Elastic bands. <laughs> bundles of money bundles that's of money. very good imagine having so much cash that it becomes the problem yeah. yes yeah at one point he was believed to supply 80 percent of the world's cocaine and they were bringing in an estimated 420 million dollars a week in turnover wow. wow well we applaud his entrepreneurialism <laughs> <laughs> yes but you do wonder don't you what will be considered treasure 
to a generation two, three hundred years on from us that we've left behind that may seem like not significant to us. Absolutely. Well, we're talking about it now, and the definition is just actually the law is just changing now on the Treasure Act and what is treasure because that old idea of it having to be gold and silver that dates back for when they were trying to generate income for the yeah. crown. And that's yeah. not what we're doing now. So it's only really in the 19th century that we were looking at archaeological value. And so now there's so many things that are so unique that are not protected at all. But as an archaeologist, right, mm. I mean, you dig up some beautiful things, carnelian, for example, some high value prestige of, I know, because you've written about it. Mm. But what really get would the thing you most wanted to get be the thing which disrupted the narrative that told you something yeah. different from what everyone thought? Definitely. It's more the importance of it and, you know, finding that little piece that tells you something you really didn't know, maybe something that's come from a very different location. I love things that are important, things that have moved. What's your best find? Things, oh, no, everyone always asks me Never that. be afraid of the obvious question. <laughs> <laughs> no, I actually, it's, it's always very, very boring. I think actually it goes back to one of my very first digs, which was quite exciting when it was in Zambia, um, actually in the Lamango Valley, and we were looking at pottery and I was just, it was literally my second year undergraduate and I was doing Pottery typology is incredibly boring, but there was one thing that nobody had ever found in this part of Zambia. And I'd been sort of putting together all these pieces, fragments and fragments and fragments, and then suddenly we found precisely that thing that nobody had found there. And it just meant that a certain group of people had come into that area, and it was just with the little squiggles and the, the patterns of squiggles. And I remember just finding it and just thinking these little squiggles just it is literally a little piece that puts together a giant big story of something, as you said, that we didn't really know before. Great story. Okay. Well, at Naseby, just down the road, every time they ploughed there, they ploughed musket balls. Yes. You take handfuls of them when I was a kid. Yeah. Well, it was fought over such a, a huge area as well, so and it was quite a lot of people. Yeah. I think the military stuff is really interesting because you think of the what it meant that day. You know, that was the beginning of Parliament, really. Mm. Yeah. That's another rabbit hole. <laughs> yes. But we're going to move on to yours now, actually, Charles, because you're up next. And well, you have been looking at Charles II's mistresses. Yes, and that's a very good segue from Richard and the Battle of Naseby, because this pretty much starts in the year of Naseby. Charles II always had an eye for women. And we know, for instance that he was involved in a campaign down in uh, Bridgewater, down in the southwest of England, and the royalists, his side, as it were, were having a tough time. And he lost his virginity to his hostess, a very great beauty called Christabella Wyndham, who had actually, 13 or 14 years earlier, been his wet nurse. So that was the start of an extraordinary life of pursuing women. John Evelyn, the diarist, said that Charles II was an excellent prince, doubtless, had he been less addicted to women. But he wasn't always a, a very smooth operator with women and a lot of clumsiness. When he went into exile in the mid-1640s, his mother, Henrietta Maria, who was French, was in exile in France and took the young Charles II as a sort of trading point. She was trying to gamble with him and, and find what sort of status of wife he could find for him and alighted on her own niece, who was called Anne-Marie-Louise of Orléans, but she was known as Mamselle. And Mamselle was very sophisticated beauty, certainly in her own eyes, I mean, embarrassingly for her. We still have her journals in which she talks endlessly about what is the most beautiful part of her. <laughs> is it her stature or figure? Or some people say it's her daintiness of her feet or the beauty of her lips, or is it the auburn hair? She's not sure, but she knows it's all pretty irresistible. Good for her. <laughs> Except to her cousin, Charles, who wasn't interested in her at all. How crushing. And there was awful dinners 
In fact, the grand dinner harks back to one of Richard's topics last week, the ortelin. The French court were having their favourite delicacy, the ortelin, a finch that is drowned in Armagnac and then eaten whole. Well, Charles, being a, a sort of solid Englishman, decided not to have that and asked for a leg of mutton and some beef. <laughs> and then the elder people in the party said, well, well, we'll leave the young to get to know each other. And Charles, who was known only really at this stage to talk to women about horses and dogs, took a sort of vow of silence, didn't speak to her for 15 minutes, at which point she gave up on him. And Charles then goes into this rather strange phase of having rejected this great match, which would have really helped the cause of the Stuarts in, in resurrecting their hopes against Parliament, and becomes a really ruthless womanizer. And I'm afraid it's not very attractive. There is a, a time in when he's a, a guest of the Scots, he's uh, reluctantly allied with the Calvinists in Scotland, and he makes what seems to be uh, almost an attempted rape attempt on a, a lady of the court there. And this is one of the darker episodes in his very active love life. But he does carry on to a, a succession of mistresses, some of whom are, of course, household names. But the one I think was the great love of his life was a, a young Welsh girl called Lucy Walter. She was the same age as him, in fact. And he seems to have fallen hopelessly in love with her and produced the first of his dozen illegitimate children, who becomes James Scott. He names him James after his grandfather, James I, and Scott, because he's proud of his Scottish blood. And he acknowledges him as this great thing. You know, American friends, when, they, when I talk to them about the Stuarts and their illegitimate children, they think it's a great stain. But actually, at the time, it wasn't considered so much that. Although, clearly, the illegitimate children had no hope of the throne. Charles, was that because the royal seaman was so splendid and magnificent and prestigious that even those begotten on the wrong side of the sheets still shared somehow in that prestige. They did if, if the king was an, a man enough to admit it, which he was, and a lot of them were. Henry I admitted all his 22 illegitimate he children. Is. He's back, bobbing up again. <laughs> Henry yeah. I, full of lampreys. But Charles II, he had a dozen, and he, he did look after the the mistresses. They They had a pretty short shelf life on the whole, and Lucy Walter's... Walter had two years. She basically became an embarrassment. She was sleeping with other people. Charles was able to wrestle custody of his son away from her. It was all rather grim. And there is a very unpleasant sort of set of people that Charles frequented with who were pimping for him. Oh, gosh. And it was all, all very ghastly. Sorry. Two, two questions. Yes. First question, was he hot? He was not hot. <laughs> and this is an interesting thing. So his mother despaired of his ugliness when he was born and used to talk about how unattractive he was. And I don't know, you know, psychologically, whether that had anything to do with his desperate attempt to be attractive to women. Because if you're a king... It helps. ..you kind of become hot. <laughs> well, actually, it does seem that a lot of these women really felt they hadn't got much of a choice if they were selected. Oh. Mm. So a lot of the women he found were either wives of courtiers, and the basic trade-off was that they'd be given an earldom, and then he'd sleep with the wife. Catherine the Great notoriously took her pleasures where she could, and handsome young courtiers in the imperial court were always providing intimate services for her. But she was advanced in years, and I don't think would have won Miss World, put it that way. But you know how, how they actually dealt with the mechanics of that? No, I don't. Uh, well, the young 
man would warm up on a an attractive woman next door and then rush in and to sort have out the empress. Yes, but this is not doesn't seem to be that much of a, a, an issue in this case. So if I go back to some of the the leading ones who we we might have heard of, there's Barbara Villiers who then becomes she marries a man called Palmer and then she becomes a castlemaid. Anyway, Barbara, let's stick with that is a very beautiful woman, classically beautiful. Lucy Walter was a very beautiful woman. And Barbara becomes the most powerful woman in the kingdom. The king has a very limited income from Parliament. He doesn't really want to rely on Parliament as much as he can, so he, he looks after his own finances as best he can. And he is criticised in 1667 when the Dutch do one of the great impudent tugs on the British beard. They sail up the Medway and destroy the British fleet. Charles is castigated for having lavished his money on gifts for his mistress rather than sorting out the navy. She, meanwhile, is very promiscuous. She has a tightrope walker as one lover. John Churchill, the future Duke of Marlborough, is found in her bedroom by Charles, and he's an absolutely impecunious army officer. And Charles taps him on the head and says, I know you do this for your bread, because she was basically giving him money in return for his favours. So they're quite raunchy, some of the, these people. But, you know, Barbara, he has five children with Barbara, and she becomes a sort of the most dominant woman in court. The backdrop of these mistresses is Catherine of Braganza, the rather lovely wife, Portuguese wife, who Charles marries. That's and the official wife. She's the official wife who miscarries frequently. We now think it's possibly because one of the quack doctors, every time she was feeling unwell with her pregnancy, would load her up with quinine, which is not at all good for pregnancies. But we go from the Barbara Castlemaine period to Nell Gwynne and Louise de Carraway. Nell Gwynne is probably the most famous of all the mistresses, quite an interesting figure, brought up in a brothel, carries on to become a fruit seller in theatre, maybe oranges, that's the myth, but it's certainly fruit. And she is quite a good actress herself. She has huge star quality. She has charisma, humour, and she's very, very sexy, to the extent that Charles keeps a hidden portrait of her naked behind a panel in his bedroom to contemplate. <laughs> and there is a myth that when he's on his deathbed, he says to his brother, please see that Nell doesn't starve. Well, she didn't starve. All her debts were paid off by James II, the new king, and she was given a pension of 1500 But why, why would? You'd think that would be the ideal opportunity for the successor to get rid of all his predecessor's encumbrances, the complications, the expense. Why would you honour a pledge to a king's mistress who presumably had no standing in law? She had no standing in law. But they were very powerful in their day. And also, I think he was honouring his brother's wish that she be looked after. And I think that they were close brothers. The most interesting, I think, is a woman called Louise de Carraway, who becomes Duchess of Portsmouth. But she's a French spy. Essentially, she's placed by Louis XIV with his very oversexed cousin, Charles II, to try and help the Catholic cause in England. She becomes a good friend of the Queen, even though she is by far living a much more spectacular life than poor Catherine de Braganza. People at the time said that Louise de Carraway's apartments were ten times more beautiful and impressive than the poor Queen's, who, who lived a much more reduced life. And she had enormous power. She had the power of a very beautiful, powerful woman. She used to allow people to come and watch her before she got dressed. She'd be in her nightdress, having her hair done, selecting her jewellery and clothes for the day, and people would come and watch her. She was a, an embodiment of the King's power and favour and taste. Oh, that's and good. So, yes, but she... 
she ends up being looked after by Louis XIV when Charles is, is dead because he's so grateful. The, she actually succeeds in one thing, which is helping Charles to die as a Roman Catholic. And that, Louis XIV thought, was pretty close to the mission accomplished. Worth a flat in Versailles. Yes. Yeah. But I've my got a second question. Yes, sorry, yes. No, so my second question is, if you were married, if you were the lawful wife of the king and you slept with somebody else, that was treason, right? Yes. And didn't go well for those who were accused and convicted of that crime? No. By attainder, wives of Henry VIII, for example. If you were a mistress, could you shag around as much as you wanted? Well, all the ones I've read about did. They were commodities. I mean, it's awful when you look back on it. They were in the thrall, well, in the pay of very rich men. There's a famous actress at the time. Actresses were fair game. Charles II actually was the first king in England to allow women to act on the stage, not out of any great sensibility, but because he wanted to see women cavorting and singing and dancing on stage. Yeah. But um, he was mixing with a group of actresses, including this woman, Moll Davis. There was huge competition among these women to stay in favour. They knew their years as beauties were numbered. And there is this case where... Nell Gwynne was worried about her rival on screen, on stage, I mean, and in the bedroom, Moll Davis, and gave her a cake laced with very strong laxative. And Moll Davis, poor thing, actually had a, a moment of huge embarrassment in the bedroom and was yeah. dispensed with by well, Charles II. hard to come back from such a thing. It's a tricky one. It? I think I'm sorry to go back to the Russian court, but I was thinking Peter the Great... Yes. He did execute his mistress, didn't he? It was, was it Mary Hamilton, the Scottish one, and who he had an illegal affair with, and then she displeased him and he sentenced her to death, and this was quite normally done. And she went to the scaffold expecting that she would be reprieved, but he turned up and didn't give her a reprieve. Oh, and no. uh, her head was chopped off, much to her irritation, and uh, he held up the head and examined it and showed the sort of vertebrae to the crowd, apparently. Oh, God, how horrible. Well, yeah. Well, we always go back to those bits. <laughs> I felt it's necessary to just drag a little. But do you know, that, so just to give some context, you know, Charles II, I see Charles II as a sort of Euro lottery winner. He spends 15 years in exile in Europe in pretty poor circumstances. There are times when he can't afford his hotel bill when he's in Germany. And then he comes back to a court which is ready to be rowdy and have a lot of fun. And he is the man at the centre of it. And yes, pretty much everyone says yes to him. Yeah. But the one, this is my favourite fact about the mistress of Charles II, is there is one who absolutely declines. She's considered the most beautiful. She's called Frances Stewart. And the quote at the time said, it was hardly possible for a woman to have less wit and more beauty. But she had the wits about her to absolutely say, I'm not prepared to do this. I'm saving my virginity for my marriage. And this drove Charles to insanity, really. He was obsessed with her. And when she secretly got married, she and her husband, a duke, were in total disgrace. But he was so obsessed by her beauty that when she caught smallpox, one of Kat's recent subjects, one of the great problems with smallpox, if you survived it, was that you'd be scarred. He left his wife's bedside, who had just had a miscarriage, to go and check on Francis Stewart's beauty to see that it hadn't been sullied by smallpox. But the beauty of Francis Stewart remained with us pretty much in its form from the 1670s to now, in that Charles II insisted on striking a medal after the Second Anglo-Dutch War to commemorate Britannia's great victory, as he portrayed it. 
and she was asked to model as Britannia. So oh. she was on all of the coins up until a decimalization and then on the back of the 50 pence piece as a, in its original sure. form. I have to ask you about Spencer girls, because they got around, <laughs> didn't they? What about them and Charles II? Well, two of the mistresses I mentioned, my family's descended from, as I mean, look, as are an awful lot of people. So the French one, de Carraway, and Barbara Castlemaine. Talking of de Carraway and Nell Gwynne, what I love about Nell Gwynne was she was funny and she had her wits about her. And at the time that um, Louise de Carraway was really unpopular, somebody saw a beautiful woman coming out of the king's apartments in a carriage and chased it, assuming it's Louise de Carraway. And Nell Gwynne went, no, no, I'm the Protestant whore, which is a rather <laughs> wonderful way of diffusing a tricky situation. Did it work? Oh, sorry, it did, lady. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Carry Beg on. Beg your pardon. Yeah. That That's a, very good. Another favourite fact, isn't it? Yeah. Excellent. Well, thank you for that. And that just leaves us with you now, Richard. I'm so pleased up. to see your big pile of notes this week. Yes, <laughs> piles of notes. Piles Our listeners can't see it, notes. but it's quite impressive. So what have you found in all of that about lighthouses? Well, you remember a couple of weeks ago I was talking about the urinal, and I asked you to go on an imaginative journey with me to the Ran of Kutch mm. in northwestern India in Gujarat and there to consider the elaborate system of culverts in the Indus Valley civilization dating back 2,000 years BCE. Step with me there again, because in that very, very site where the Haparan people built this extraordinary city, there is a tower and a ramp, and it is thought to be, dating from about 2500 BC, the first lighthouse. Lighthouses, of course, absolutely essential to get your way around safely. Originally built, actually, as a sort of beacon to show you where the harbour was. So, for example, the great lighthouse of Alexandria, the Pharos, one of the wonders of the world, of course, all... Um, built around, so around 300 BC by the Ptolemies, one and two, was there to light the way into Alexandria. Not to light the way, but to indicate where Alexandria Harbour was, where people come to Alexandria Harbour, great gateway to the east and everything. So that was their original purpose. And you still have some ancient lighthouses in operation today. I think the best one is the Tower of Hercules at Coruña in Galicia, in northern Spain. And part of that building, it was just up in the 18th century, is first century. So very, very, very old indeed. In the Middle Ages, I was curate at Boston, not in the Middle Ages, <laughs> uh, I was curate at Boston Stump, one of the great parish churches of England with a tower 272 feet high. Why such an enormous tower? Well, because Boston was a port on the wash. And at the top of the tower, there's a lantern. And in the Middle Ages, convoys of boys would have to take fuel up to the top of that to light it so people sailors could see where Boston was. The lighthouse as we know it today really got going in the 18th century. Why? Well, I'll tell you why. It was the rise of transatlantic trade. So all of a sudden shipping was going between the New World and the Old World, and that meant approaching England in particular, for example, along its rocky Atlantic coast. Terribly, terribly dangerous. If you were trying to put into a port in England coming from the West, your chances of being shipwrecked were higher than in lots of other places. So lighthouses started to be built to give the warning to sailors of where these rocks lay. Many of them submerged most of the time. So in the sort of early 18th century, they start being built. The most famous lighthouse perhaps of all is Ediston Lighthouse on the Ediston Rock, which is not far from Plymouth. Notoriously dangerous if you're coming into... English ports. The first wooden one was built in the 18th century and was washed away 
with its lighthouse keepers. No one was ever found again. The second one was built, that burnt down in 1755 because lighthouses being lighthouses are obviously places of combustible material. But it was the, the third was well, the Edison Lighthouse, which is perhaps the most famous one of all. And there was a very interesting chap called Smeaton. Smeaton was the man who, perhaps more than any, was responsible for what we think of the lighthouse nowadays, which you think of that lovely pepper pot shaped thing with the sort of tapered sides and uh, standing out on uh, what they call a sea-washed location. So it's actually offshore, standing on a rock. Notoriously difficult to construct. Smeaton was smart and he discovered hydraulic lime, which had been used by the Romans, a lime that would actually set underwater. He also used interlocking granite blocks with dovetail joints that were held with marble dowels to provide a very stable structure. So he was able to build a lighthouse which was able to withstand the forces of Atlantic gales and just provide a little bit of safety for people coming towards England from the west. Robert Stevenson. You're thinking of the locomotive, aren't you? Well, I'm obviously wrong if I am. Well, you are wrong, <laughs> but it's an understandable wrong. It's a different Robert Stevenson. Yes. Not uh, it was a V the rather than a PH. Yeah. And Robert Stevenson was the greatest lighthouse engineer of his day. And he was responsible for this most famous lighthouse was the Bell Rock Lighthouse, which is just off Arbroath. And again, it's built on a lump of rock in the middle of nowhere. It was an extraordinary feat. And he was considered one of the wonders of the industrial world. Opened, I think, in 1810. And to build it, they used to row builders out. Strict Sabbatarians, didn't want to work on a Sunday, took forever. Two and a half thousand lumps of rock went into its construction, each one pulled by the same horse, who was called Bassey. Anyway, <laughs> there's a little detail for you. Eventually, they just, it was so fiddly and complicated and time-consuming that way, they built a sort of shelter next to the lighthouse, and it was a sort of wooden hut on stilts where the workmen could reside while they were busy building this incredibly difficult thing to build. Many of them were injured, and if you were injured, you actually probably got a chance of being a lighthouse keeper, so that was quite good. Innovations too. Innovations in, for example, the lenses. The Fresnel lens came along. That was a revolutionary thing. A lens, you think of it as a sort of concave shape, right? Well, the Fresnel did it with lots of concentric sort of interlocking rings, which gave you the effect of a much larger surface, but within a narrower and a more concentrated field, if you see what I mean. And it provided a, an intensified light. Fresnel's also used in stage on stage, actually, the Fresnel lights with Harris flaps, as they're known, the sort of gate things to direct them. They give you sort of backlight and top light, so they're still used in theatres today. But that, so you could get your light further, and that was a really important thing. How you obtained that light, well, originally it was just kind of burning wood. Coal then came along, that gave off a brighter light, but of course it made your lighthouse very sooty, and that was a shame. And so there were various innovations that came along to create better sort of light. There was sort of wick technology came along. And this was really, if you think about the, the, the growth in shipping in the 18th and 19th centuries, it was incredibly important as people moved around the world. They needed those cargoes and those passengers to be moved around safely. So lighthouses were really, really important. And how that light was cast and how far it went was really, really important. One great development occurred in the, I think it was around 1900, and we must go to Scandinavia again, not to Norway, Kat, but to Sweden, where Gustav Dalian invented a method of burning acetylene. He had actually invented a method of storing acetylene safely, and acetylene gave off a much, much, much brighter light, which, of course, did the job of a lighthouse so much better. And that 
was standard up until the 20th century when electrification came along. All this, of course, needed an authority to oversee it. Well, if you were an English lighthouse, you were overseen by Trinity House, which still exists. Trinity House was established by Henry VIII. I can't go back to Henry I, I'm afraid. But the eighth of that name established Trinity House. And its job was to oversee the beacons and the boys and the lighthouses. And it still is today. It's headquarters in London. They were actually destroyed in the Blitz, but rebuilt. And among the masters of Trinity House, Samuel Pepys. You mentioned John Evelyn, I think. Well, Samuel yes. Pepys is master of Trinity House. And the present, do you know who the present master of Trinity House is? No. The Princess Royal which has been doing it for a while. But they made sure that everything was done ship-shape in Bristol. Because you needed a coordinating authority to make sure that this stuff... They had been in private hands, actually, and you had to pay for the privilege of using a lighthouse. Now, ships are taxed when they come into port based on tonnage, and from that, lighthouse maintenance is secured. There aren't so many of them now. When did the lighthouse keeper become redundant? Well, it's sort of in the 1960s, really, because of automation. So technology allowed that to happen. But, well, there's an interesting... Go with me <laughs> to the storm-fretted shores of Pembrokeshire. It's 1801, and we're at the Smalls Lighthouse, which is a lighthouse built on rocks off the coast of Pembrokeshire. There, Thomas Howell and Thomas Griffith were the pair of lighthouse keepers responsible, living in great isolation, to ensure that the lighthouse burned and provided the necessary safety for mariners arriving on Pembrokeshire, towards Pembrokeshire. They hated each other, notoriously. And then one day, in a freak accident, Thomas Howell died. Thomas Griffith thought, well, what am I going to do about this? I'm not going to be relieved for a while. What am I going to do with the body? If I just throw it into the sea, people will think that I murdered him because we got on so infamously. So what he did was he made a makeshift coffin and he put the body in the coffin and then lashed it to a rock at the edge of the rock on which the lighthouse stood. And there it stood, battered by the waves, battered by the gales, to the point when the coffin began to fall apart and the semi-decomposed body of Thomas Howell appeared exposed to view. Every time a wave came in, he raised one rotting arm and then it fell again, raised and fell again. And it looked like he was beckoning or waving towards Thomas Griffith. And this went on for some time before relief arrived. And when relief did arrive, do you know what they found? No. Thomas Griffith had lost his reason. He had been so affected by the waving, beckoning corpse arm of Thomas Howell that he'd lost his wits. And they changed the law. And from that moment, lighthouse keepers had to come in threes. Automation did away with them, essentially. New technology came along, changed things very substantially. There's a major problem with this, though, and it's one that we should all be deeply concerned with. In the Soviet Union, where it's got lots of coastline that needs lots of lighthouses that is remote and difficult to staff and maintain, they put in nuclear strontium-90 powered light, OK? Required no maintenance. You just stick it in there and leave it, and it would cast its light forever in a day, it being a radioactive isotope. Unfortunately, they never really kept a record of how many they had. We know we, they had more than a 1,000, but we don't know where they are. And occasionally, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, the rise of the Russian Federation, occasionally they go, we'd better go and just check to see how our nuclear lighthouses are doing. And they'd go there and they'd find not only that no one had been there for 20 years, but also they'd nicked the radioactive material. And there was a famous case of some people who found some, not knowing what it was, strapped it to their backs and brought it, in and of course had suffered terrible radiation burns mm. as a result. But the concern 
is that radioactive material might be used in a dirty bomb. So if you're interested in creating a sort of homemade thermonuclear mm. device, homemade and thermonuclear, two words you really don't want no. to no. go together. If you were looking for radioactive material to use, you might just start looking at these old lighthouses. So be very careful. I, I, Nobody mans lighthouses. And there are a few places actually, in Canada, they still preserve the tradition of, I should say, staffed rather than manned mm -hmm. lighthouses. And that's the But everywhere else, they're pretty much automated. And actually they're not really that significant anymore mm. because GPS, yeah. because satellite technology enables people to make their way around the world more safely. So it's kind of goodbye to the lighthouse, which is a shame. Where I live, Kat, mm -hmm. from my house, I can look out across the downs and there is the Beltoot lighthouse oh. standing near Beachy Head to give its light. Yeah. Mm. But it's moved because of erosion. It's been moved in. And in fact, they're going to have to move it again because we're all falling into the sea. None of these are my favourite fact. Which, Which one is? is? Cast your mind back. <laughs> are we, coming? Are we coming with you are we again? Coming now? We're on the journey. <laughs> to the Swedish inventor of the acetylene light or the method of storing acetylene safely, Gustav Dalian. Mm. He won the Nobel Prize in physics for this, I have to say, because you imagine it was a huge, yeah. huge, huge breakthrough. He invented something else in 1922. And I will give you a pound of English money if either of you can tell me what did Dalian invent in 1922? I feel like I should know this. It's a really good okay. fact. Go on. Charles? I'm so unscientific. I'm struggling to think what might have been invented in 1922. You've got one. I don't know. The Arga. Oh. Of course, yes. Well, there we are. That's the shortest favourite fact I think I've ever <laughs> delivered. Very In letters good. as well as words. Yeah, very good. <laughs> we have a, another fact from our disembodied voice as well. Richard, you mentioned the situation at the Smalls Lighthouse uh, in Pembrokeshire. You actually got your Griffiths and your Howells around the wrong way. It was actually Thomas Griffith who was killed in the accident and Howell who uh, I resign. <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> All right, okay. It's still a great story. It was a good story, I thought. I mean, I thought it was sort of good story, slightly it's marred very in the ghost, mm. Yeah, ghostly. It's a, ghost story. a good short fact as well. I mean, if I were just, I don't know what your criteria for marking are, disembodied voice, but if you were looking <laughs> for good stories and brevity, I don't know, I would be quite a strong <laughs> contender, I'd have thought. Well, maybe we should go straight to it then, as we're on the topic. So what is the, the choice? Because every week, for those who haven't listened before, our disembodied voice completely undemocratically chooses a winner. Much as I was hoping that Richard would become the Devon Locke of this series and fall short after his early start, his passion has carried lighthouses to the well victory. Done. There you Very go. Good. Well done. There's a lot of knowledge in that today. I did think Well, that. you know, who does when I was a kid, I wanted to be a lighthouse keeper. Did you? Did you, you, you well? could stay no, no, never. I thought that was it's awful, a lonely thing. I never crossed thing to my do. mind. No. <laughs> <laughs> you can go and we will wait well, about you. I mean you had to do actually there would be three of you, of course. Yes. Well we could do it. The we three could do of us. Like, yeah, but we you could can, do it on you tour. can rent them. You can actually rent you can stay at certain lighthouses, can't you? Yes, you can. So maybe we should go and do an episode from a lighthouse. I I ascended the Ardnamurchan Lighthouse with Hamza Yassin, winner of Strictly Come Dancing 2022. There's a boast. Well, that's yes, it's one that takes yes. some time to digest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can Sorry, I was just kind of buoyed up by my win. Well, well done. Congratulations. Back. Thank you. So before we go and say goodbye today, we have to decide on our topics for next week. So the list is going to be Richard. You're going to be looking into knitting patterns. Yes, please. I'm going to be researching sugar and Charles, hangover cures. But of course. 
<laughs> Who better to <laughs> So that's it for this week. And thank you to everyone for listening. And if you liked what you heard on the podcast, please do subscribe and leave us a review because it helps other people find the podcast, people who haven't heard it already. You can also suggest other rabbit holes for us to fall down in future episodes by sending us an email, rabbitholedetectives at gmail.com. A huge thank you to everyone who's done that so far. We've had some brilliant emails and suggestions that we're going to be delving into in later episodes. And don't forget that every Wednesday you can now find our new Rabbit Hole Detectives column in the Daily Telegraph, where we discuss some of our favourite facts. So, in the words from Lewis Carroll's Alice, I can't know everything. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye.